0: Fair Hill Church. Uh, good to see you again. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> All right. So, we are in our last week looking at Gideon. And we're walking through the judges and we're seeing uh, some of the high points and some of the lows. Last week, well, first, first we saw that Gideon was supposed to be what? He's supposed to be the, the destroyer of idols, the contender with Baal, the one alone who could destroy evil and idolatry. If kids want to leave now, I, I know, here's, here's my wife telling me that I should tell the kids to leave. <laughs> I, I see you, I see you. All right, so if you want to go, uh, ages four to six can go, can go. The rest of you are, are here to learn about Gideon. All right, all right, so we have this great contender with idols, the contender with Baal. Uh, Gideon that first week, he received great promises and tore down The idols that Israel was getting uh, distracted by and was causing them to to fall into uh, idolatry but also to be subjugated by the Midianites. Last week, last week we saw that the victory over the Midianites would not come from Israel's power, Israel's might, Israel's armies. It would come by faithfully trusting the Lord who would give the victory, would give it graciously. And we give it to those who would trust and believe in, in his ability to save. Now this week, we're seeing the aftermath. Right, what happens to Gideon after he witnesses this great victory? After the 300 men cut, whittled down from, from 32,000 to 300, after they see this great victory, over enemies as as vast as the the sand on the seashore, what does he turn into? What does he become? And sadly, we're going to see that Gideon becomes a people-pleasing, authority-abusing, self-serving pseudo-king. He takes everything he can get from this victory and he offers no glory to God he offers nothing to the people around him. He takes and takes and takes. And we see in Gideon a contrast to the great king that is Jesus. This great king who doesn't come to, to take and to use and manipulate, but comes to rebuke and restore and rule over his people in righteousness. So that's what we're seeing this this morning we're looking at uh, Judges seven twenty four through eight thirty two. This is a really big passage. Uh, we're going to go through it. I'm going to read it through, not not all at once, but piece by piece. So, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and see this this sad reality of Gideon, but with great hope that we have a much better king in store. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to see the kings that we deserve. And the kings who look like us and the kings who reflect the the sinful hearts that we know uh, characterize our own lives. But Father, we thank you and thank you and thank you that we have a better king. We have a great and awesome king who leads us in glorifying you and who longs to serve and to, to lay down his life for his people. Father, I ask that you administer it to us through your word that we would come to know uh, the beauty of having Jesus as king. And Father, would you, would you bring praises to our hearts? Would you, would you give us obedience in our lives? And would you just help us to, to glorify our Savior and king, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with three sections here. The first section is Gideon and his interaction with the Ephraimites. Ephraimites. All right, so what's happening here is uh, he just defeated the, the core of the Midianite army, but some of the Midianites are fleeing. And they're, they're fleeing south into the territory of Ephraim. And as they flee, Gideon calls the men to come out, the men of Ephraim, the Ephraimites, to come and, and battle with these Midian soldiers and capture them. So we're going to start at verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. All right. So they have been called and recruited, not as part of the initial invasion. They were not part of that 32,000. They're not part of that 300. But because they started, the Midianites started fleeing into their territory, the Ephraimites were, uh, were recruited. And they were successful in that they defeated the Midianites. And in particular, they captured two of the princes. These great prizes, the princes who were leading his army, Oreb and Zeb. Now, how did they react to all of this? How did the Ephraimites interact with all this? And, and how is Gideon going to respond? Verse 8, the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. All right, we're going to start to see that the tribes in Israel, uh, they actually have real characteristics. I remember when I first started learning this, like, oh, they, they kind of have personalities, these different tribes. And the Ephraimites, they're, they're known for being kind of the, the rebel tribe. And they're often out for their own glory. They're often the, the first to complain And why are they so angry? They're so angry because they didn't get part of the glory of this battle. That they wanted to be included in in the tribes that defeated the Midianites. That they would receive the acclaim to their name that they thought they deserved. And they didn't want to be the cleanup crew at the end. They wanted to be there for all of the glorious battle. Now, we start to see that These different tribes, they're incredibly fractured. This is not one nation. This is not one people all worshiping God together. It looks more like 13 warring tribes. 12 or 13, depending on how you count them, warring tribes over who can get the most glory, who can get the most land, who can get the most kind of claim to God for themselves. And we start to see this great need for a king. We need someone to unite these people, to bring them together, that they would glorify God as one. Now, as we think of the Ephraimites, how should they have reacted to all that just went down? They should be celebrating. They should be rejoicing that they were delivered from the Midianites and that on the one hand, they didn't have to go fight, but then they did have this prominent role at the end. They did capture these two princes. They are used by God. They are tools in his hand. But in their, in their selfishness and in their concern for their own glory and their own standing, they're bitter and they're complaining. They're not part of this communal victory, they want their own personal piece of the pie. All right. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? All right. These tribes are reflective of the people of God and the church, us, us. All right. Do we see in us the same heart that is expressed among the Ephraimites? Now, what might this look like? All right, it might look like an individual basis that you, you interact with other Christians and when you see their great victories, when you see them defeating sin, when you see them finally enjoying God and praising him with all their heart, when you see them pursuing the word diligently, right, are you upset about it? Are you honestly upset in your heart and think, well, God, why didn't I get that victory? Why aren't you working in me? Or maybe you want to tear it down and you say, well, they're probably just being self-righteous. They just think they're better than everyone now. And, you know, they're not doing it sincerely. They just, they just want to prove something to everyone. All right, that dwells in our hearts. And if we're talking kind of more tribally, we can see that in the heart of the church too. That we would say of ourselves, you know, we, we want to. We want to see people saved. We want to see the glory of God brought into the earth. We want to build the kingdom. And we actually get upset when we see the church next door doing so. Or the church across the street. Or the, the, the larger kingdom being built. That we have this weird competitive spirit. And we want ultimately glory for ourselves. We want, we want to feel like we've done something great. Now, do you see your heart in that? And do you know the great evil of that just because the glory of, of our glory is Christ's glory? When Jesus came, he, he came to give us his great glory. He came to give us his victory. He came to give us his standing before his Father. And so we don't have to be competitive. We can receive the glory together. And if Jesus is lifted up, you are lifted up. If Jesus is glorified, that's your glory there. That's your kingdom. That's your people. We should be able to rejoice with one another and delight in the working of God collectively. Not resenting that, that where was our peace? Where was our victory? Now, does Gideon tell them that? Does Gideon help them get there? No, look what he says. Verse, uh, verse 2. He said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. All right, what is he saying here? He's essentially saying, like, you know what? No, we're, we're nothing compared to you, Ephraim. We're nothing compared to you. We didn't do anything. You're the victors here. You get all the glory because you, you defeated the princes. You brought their, their heads before us, literally. And no, you, you guys are so great. We're nothing. I am nothing. All right, is that good? All right, it sounds kind of good. And you you see commentators like, well, like a a gentle answer turns away wrath. Like, he, he he really helped these people. All right, he didn't. He didn't really help these people. All right, this is a tribe of rebels who all they wanted was their own glory. All right, what was the point of the whole battle? That God was working and was being victorious and that no one else would get the glory. That's why he took 32,000 people and turned it into 300. So that no one could lay claim to the glory. So no one could say that, you know, it was our victory. And here is Ephraim expressing that exact same heart and Gideon does nothing about it. What should he have said? He should have said, the glory is not yours, the glory is God's. And the glory is not mine. I don't receive any glory and you were used by God so for his glory not for, for your own. Do you not see that? Do you not see that, that God himself was the, is the one who, who claimed all of this? And in that, what does he do? He's people pleasing. We see that in this verse. And their anger against him subsided when he said this. They were mad at him, and he didn't want them to be mad at him. All right. The Lord was angry hearing the the heart of the Ephraimites. And what these people needed to hear was a a rebuke from their leader. Instead, Gideon appeases them, sidesteps, and goes on his merry way. All right. That's not good leadership. That's not a great blessed anointed one who's ready to rule over Israel. Just as a way of illustration, like, have you ever done that? And you would said, like, you know, I'm going I'm to look over a fence. I'm not going to bring anything up with this person. I'm just going to let them do their thing. All right. Was it really grace or was it laziness? <laughs> or was it just, you know, I don't want the hassle. I don't want them mad at me. right, that's people pleasing, that's appeasing. Not for their good, but for our good, for and that's Gideon Gideon is doing it for his good. Insincere flattery. And even denying the the glory that God should receive. And the Ephraimites, they're going to become more of a disaster later on in this book. They should have been, they should have been humbled here. But instead they're elevated. And they're they're the leaders of the tribes of the northern tribes that actually abandon the Lord and get destroyed. All right. This is a long line that the leaders did not deal with, and they ought to have. People-pleasing. All right. Now let's keep going. That's story number one. Here is this, this great ruler, not looking so hot. All right, second story. Now, uh, if Gideon looks bad, he starts to look really bad as we go forward. He's appeased Ephraim, and he said, you know, you have these great prizes, these princes, but but I'm going to go after the kings. And so he sets forth to go after the kings of the Midianites, seemingly humble, but he does it with just like crazy abuses of his power and ultimately ends up attacking his own people. Verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna, is already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given them into, your, into your, my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Right, brutal. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower all right, what's going on here? All right, this is bad news. That the 300, all right, they are totally exhausted. And yet, what does Gideon do? Gideon is, is forcing them forward. They are pursuing these kings with all of their strength. And they get to these cities and are demanding from them. Demanding that he support them or that they support him and his victory so that he might claim for himself these two kings. And notice that now that these people are in his way, the Ephraimites, they, he, he dealt with them, he pushed them aside, but now these, he needs something from them. He doesn't just need them to go away. And what does he become? He becomes, becomes a terror angry and vindictive, offering vengeance upon these people. How dare, how dare they not support his cause? How dare they not get behind him? And if they don't, he will come in his wrath. Do we remember who this was? This was the guy who was cowering in the threshing floor, who didn't think he could do anything. And now, now he's now that he has power he is just he's just trampling people and so he goes and gets the two kings he captures them and he returns to the cities verse 15 he came to the men of Succoth and said behold Zeba and Zalmanah, of whom you taunted me saying are the hands of the already in your hand and should we give you good bread to your men who are exhausted and he took the elders of the city he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Then he goes on, verse 17, "And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. All right. This is the Lord's anointed one, destroying God's people. This is the one who, is, who has been given all of this mercy. Think of all, all the mercy Gideon has been given. He was constantly questioning God. He was constantly faithless. And God like keeps helping him along and keeps empowering him. And yet now that he's in power, now that he's the one who can give grace, he offers none. In fact, he, he, promises, he promises bad and he gives them worse. That's what he's doing with all this power. Now let's see, what, what does he do with the actual enemy that he's been pursuing, and, and why was he pursuing them? Verse 18, then he said to Zebah and Zalmanah, where are the men whom you killed at, at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. All right, what is the motive of this man? We thought that it was just this great war plan. That Gideon was supposed to to defeat these kings as the final kind of cutting off of the, the tribe of Midian. No, we realized these 300 weren't even supposed to be pursuing. This wasn't God's plan. This wasn't this kind of spiritual battle. It wasn't even a national interest. It wasn't for the sake of all of Israel. No, what was it? It was, it was a personal vendetta against the, the men who had killed his brothers. And as we start to kind of read this back, we think, well, no wonder they didn't want to give you bread. This wasn't for them. This wasn't for anyone in Israel. This was for you. This was for Gideon and his glory. Now, sadly, that's, that is in the hearts of men and women in their sin. That in our, in our desperation, in our weakness, we, we run to God and we seek out his great salvation and grace. But then we receive it and we think that, well, now that all belongs to us. Now let's, we can go our own way. Now we don't need to depend upon him. Now we don't need to do his will. Now we've been given all of this so we can assert our own will. So we can, we can run our own and fight our own battles. Notice, this is the Gideon who, who used to be so concerned about the will of God. And we thought, oh, he's so concerned about the will of God. He's, he like really wants to do what God wants. He wanted to when he thought he was weak. Now that he's strong, he doesn't need to anymore. All right, That's a difficult reality of, of post-salvation life and what it can become. Now, as the, the last effort here, he seeks to humiliate these kings as they have humiliated him and destroyed his brothers. Verse 20. He said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zemunah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. Basically, a boy has the strength of a boy. A man has the strength of a man. Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zemunah. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. All right, what do we see here? This was supposed to be the making of a great king, Gideon. We see that, that, that the, the kings of Midian, they recognize him and say, he, he was like a son of, these are like sons of kings. There, there's something special about them. And we have this, this, okay, there's supposed to be this line, this line of kings and sons. And Gideon has been given such grace and has been given such gentleness that he's been brought along and, and slowly encouraged and says, you know, like, hey, I know I know you don't feel powerful, but here I'll be with you and I'll give you my spirit and I will go before you. What does Gideon give his son? He gives him a sword and says, be strong. How about you, how about you destroy your, your enemies and your own strength? He can't do it. He can't do it, and he he was offered grace, but what does he give in return? He just gives rules and, and lays down the fear just as heavy as he felt it before. It's a really sad legacy. And we see that, that this man, he is not fit to be king. He is not fit to to create this, this line of kings after him. He is not giving to the next generation the things that he received. Now that can be a warning for us, but that's not the, that's not the, main, the main point here. Ultimately, ultimately, what are we seeing? The battle cry used to be, for the Lord and for Gideon. All right, we dropped off that first part. Now we're just saying for the Lord, or for for Gideon. For Gideon. For Gideon's glory, for Gideon's will, for Gideon's honor. That's this uh, this would-be king that seeks to rule over them. Now, we have one final story. All right. So we have this man who, who's a people pleaser. Then, on the other hand, he's he's abusing his authority to assert his own will. And finally, finally, we're gonna see he was offered the kingship. He was offered to become the king of Israel, and this is what he does with it. Verse twenty-two. Then the men of Israel came to uh, said to Gideon, "Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also." This one he he had not brought up well. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. All right. Is this a good telling of the story? Is that, is that, a, good, is that a good retelling of the story of the defeat of the Midianites? No, it's terrible. He didn't, he didn't defeat anyone. That was the whole point. All he did was hold up torches and trumpets. He literally didn't do anything. That was the whole point of all of this. And what does Gideon say? Nothing. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, well, no, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who did this. Now, what does he say? He does, uh, verse 23, Uh, it sounds nice. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. All right, great. Great, yeah, the Lord is king, okay. He probably should have shown in something about how and the victory was the Lord's, that's why we worship, and it's not about me. No, no, he, instead, what does he take for himself? He says, no, I don't want to rule, I don't want to serve, I don't want to lead you people. But, verse 24, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you is to give me earrings from his spoil. For, they, for the enemies, they had golden earrings because they're of the Ishmaelites. They answered, we were willing to give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that was requested was hundred, or sorry, 1,700 shekels, not like 42 pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. All right, what is this? This is Gideon basically saying, you know what? Uh, I don't want to do the work of being your king, but I'll take all the splendor and spoils of it. I'll I'll, I'll use you guys, but I won't serve you. And because this is my victory, I have earned this. And so I'm taking it for myself. And he will now live as if he is a king, but offer no, uh, no service to the people. Instead, what does he do? Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it. This is like a, kind of like an armor, kind of, I don't know, a vest, sort of. A a really sparkly vest. Uh, He made an ephod of it and put it in in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years during the days of Gideon. All right, what an awful story. All right, so he becomes a pseudo-king. He refuses to serve his people. Instead, what does he do? He leads them into idolatry. This is Jerubbaal, the contender with Baal, the destroyer of idols. And what does he end up doing? He ends up creating an idol leading his people astray. And this whole story, what were we supposed to see? What really matter, matters is destroying the idols, not defeating the Midianites. It was always about idolatry. It was always about idolatry. And we don't need a leader who can just clean up the lives. He needs, we need a leader who can clean up the hearts of the people and lead them in worship and call them to give the glory to God. Instead, we have this king, this king, who does nothing for his people, but lead them astray and take from them. All right. What do we do with this bleak story? What do we do with it? All right. Now, I I know I've given you some examples of like, hey, you could like apply this to your life. That's not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is you say, okay, this is a king, a would-be king, and we hate this king. We hate the things he stands for. We hate the way that he mistreats his people. All right. That should cause a new, okay, a longing for a king a longing for a king who is far better than Gideon. A king who doesn't just want phone to people, please you and get you out of the way, but really shapes your heart and calls you to the glory of God. That you would want a king who doesn't just abuse his power so he can manipulate things and, and assert his own will. But no, so that the will of the father might be executed, that his will might be done. And he might lead you in that, not using you, and finally, you might have a king who isn't just trying to take the spoils of war, take from your pockets, but no, who is trying to to serve and to lead and to rule. Now, thankfully, we don't get the king we deserve, Gideon. What if we received we have received King Jesus? King Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his righteousness. The call for you is not to be better than Gideon. The call for you is to rejoice that you have a better king than Gideon. Let's think about these things. Now, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't just try to please people. And when he sees us in our sin, when he sees us giving glory to another, he doesn't say, you know what, yeah, you're fabulous. You're wonderful. No, what does he say? He says, no, the the Father is glorious and wonderful. And your place is to give glory to him. But even more than that, what does he say? He says, you know what, like we said earlier, my glory is your glory. And I have all of the glory. I resurrected in glory. And yet, I I share it with you. So I am lifted up, but in me, you are lifted up too. You share in my glory. You share in my victories. You share in all of the spoils of war and all of the triumph. You get to, to reign with me and rule with me. And to enjoy the victory that I have attained. And you don't have to fight for it anymore. You don't have to be insecure looking at everyone else and saying, you know, am I, am I good enough? Am I going to get what, what I, what's coming to me? Did I, did I fight enough? Did I do enough to? No. Receive the glory of Jesus, your king. Rest in the glory that he gives you. Let it, let it kind of wash over the, the shame and the guilt and the, the worthlessness that tends to penetrate us and say, no, I, I have the worth of Christ in me. I don't need to compare myself. I don't need any of that. I have a great glorious king who shares his glory with me. We have a king who does not abuse his power for his own glory. What did Gideon? Gideon, he, he uses his people to attain for his own, his own heights and glory. What does Jesus do? Jesus submits to his father's will. Always. He always submits to his Father's will. And he's always seeking to love us and serve us. As we submit to this king, he is not seeking to trample us. He's not seeking to, to rob us and use us for these other, other aims. No, he is he's calling us to, to join him in his kingdom. And we don't have to fear that if we're not good enough or if we, we fail to, to follow his agenda, that he's going to come with, with whips and briars and thorns to chastise us. And No, we have the one who does the opposite. He saw all of our sin and what does he do? He was whipped for it. He was beaten for it. He took the punishment that, that we deserved so that we might... Have great peace and, and freedom before God. All right, what a king. And finally, we have this great king who doesn't rise to the throne that he might serve himself. Then he might take from us the, the, the precious things that we have and take them for himself. No, he He has he has all right, he has everything. You don't need to give him anything. Do you have anything that God is just like desperately waiting for? No. No, he's not. He's not looking and picking your pocket. He really isn't. What is he doing? He is, he is earning for you an inheritance in heaven, the inheritance and the reward for all of his righteousness, and he shares it with us. He's not saying, hey, throw all the earrings in here so I might rule over you and... No, he, he's, he's handing them out and saying, hey, I, I won this. This is what I deserve. I give it back to you. All right, what a king. And who isn't ensnaring us into idolatry and foolishness. He's delivering us from it. He's leading our hearts away that we may have freedom and, and joy in the peace. Of standing before God unhindered. That is our king. That is our king. Do you want to follow him? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to glorify him and praise him? Do you want to receive his glory? Do you want to receive the victory that is in him? That is what this is about. What a great king we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for the victory that you have had in Jesus. We praise you for the grace that has covered us. We thank you for a king that is constantly giving himself and sacrificing himself and, and calling us out of idolatry and foolishness and, and giving us a glory that is not our own and, and doing your will on our behalf. And taking the punishment that we deserve. and Father, what a king we have in Jesus. We ask that his commandments would not be burdensome. His, his rule would not be oppressive to us. But that we would rejoice in everything he has for us. And we look forward to, to living in the kingdom for all eternity and building it here. We pray in Christ's name.